0: I want to invite our children to Children's Church. If you want to head to the back, your teacher will meet you back there. Uh, just a more age-appropriate setting for them to, to learn about the scriptures. Um, so uh, as they go, let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll look at the uh, book of Acts. Lord, we appeal to you for grace to trust you more. Uh, Lord, we just sang that, and it is such an appropriate prayer. Lord, we need grace. We need your unmerited favor. We need your favor upon us to change us, to draw us, so that our hearts will be tuned to want you more, to trust you more, to seek you more. So Lord, would you be with us and to lead us in that way? Give us your grace, we pray. And Lord, this morning I want to pray for um, a friend church, Berean Fellowship in Palmdale, Pray for Pastor Darrell as he's preaching this morning, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be working in and with and through him. Give him the ability to handle your word well for his people, that the congregation there would be hearing more about who Jesus is, what he's done, and Lord, that you increase their faith and their trust in you through the preaching of your word. And Lord, I pray that you would also work in them to lead them to worship in spirit and in truth, Lord, that they would be finding you more and more delightful as they gather together and sing your praises. So thank you for their ministry. Thank you for the the work that they do in in laboring to understand who you are and to make that known to other people. And Lord, I pray for the same thing for us. Would you inhabit our worship? Would you inhabit this time of uh, study of your word? And would you show us yourself more clearly? And Lord, we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So... We're still in this kind of interim state in the book of Acts. We're in this, this gap. Um, and, and I'm really chopping at the bit to get to t- chapter two. I'm looking forward to Pentecost, but we're not there yet, so I've got to kind of rein it in. Um, if you're paying attention, you'll notice that we started reading with what we ended reading last time. And that's that section about they returned from Jerusalem, or they returned to, uh, to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, and then it kind of goes through who went with them. Uh, a couple of reasons for that. First is, that's the linchpin that ties these two sections together. Jesus' ascension, and then what comes next as they're gathered together and what they're going to do what they're about to do. So that was the primary reason I had them overlap it. The other one is, I have to confess to you, brothers and sisters, my geographical heresy from last week. I, uh, as soon as I said it, I went, I, I, I don't know if you could see on my face, but I thought, that's not right. <laughs> last week I said that they traveled the Sabbath day's journey. And I said that was a week long. And I was thinking a Sabbath's journey. A Sabbath is a week. And that's what it was. A Sabbath day's journey was how long you were able to travel in a week. Or in a a Sabbath day. And the reason that I, as soon as I said it, I went, I know that ain't right. Because I thought, Bethany's not that far from Jerusalem. So they must have been walking really slow. So I ask your forgiveness. Uh, I publicly recant. I, I take my words back. And uh, I, I'm sorry for uh, temporarily misleading some of you. A Sabbath day's journey is a pretty short journey. It's not that far. Uh, so it gave me an opportunity to repent in front of everyone. But the way this starts is it starts with the apostles and the disciples doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. Right at the very beginning, he said, don't depart from Jerusalem until the promise of my father has been given to you. So stay in Jerusalem. Don't head home, don't go to Emmaus, don't go to Galilee, don't go to any of these other places, stay in Jerusalem. So that's, that's what they did. They, they obeyed. They stayed in Jerusalem. The other thing that happens there is they're in one accord. So the, the disciples are together. They're not grumbling, they're not complaining, they're not struggling with, well, now what do we do? We're going to just sit on our hands until something happens. They're in one accord, and they're devoting themselves to prayer. So this is what disciples do. Jesus has just disappeared into the clouds. He has left them. Their master, they thought was dead. They got him back. They walked with him for a period of time, about 40 days, and now he's gone. And this is how the church responds, is they devote themselves to prayer and they live in harmony as they wait for the next thing to happen. So that sets up what comes next. Now, what comes next is not what I was hoping. (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. And then the Holy Spirit came and wonderful things happened. We've got some business to take care of. And what's really mind-blowing about this is this is an interval in time that can't be repeated because this is an interval where Jesus has ascended and the Holy Spirit has not come upon his church yet. So the church is sitting in this holding pattern. So remember last week I said when we study the book of Acts, we have to ask, is it describing what happened or is it telling us what should happen? Well, this is clearly something we cannot repeat We can't make the Holy Spirit go away and wait for him to come again. And and what they do in this is they replace Judas. They replace one of the apostles. We are never going to replace one of the apostles. That's just not what we're called to do. Not one of the twelve. So in, in one sense, this is a descriptive passage. It's just saying this is what the church was up to. Um, And if that's true, then, well, you know, that's interesting, but it doesn't really help us very much. It's, It's not terribly, it's interesting, but it's not terribly applicable for us. So what I want to point out is this is descriptive, but it's not only descriptive. There are some things that they do that we should be doing, and we'll see as we go through. This is something that the church continues to do. So there is some prescriptive elements of this, too. So let's take a look at what happens. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. A company of persons was about 120 and said, Brothers, is Peter only talking to the guys? No, because what happened with well, the sentence before that was, they were together with the women and Mary and Jesus' brothers. So here's the important thing. If you've got an ESV, look down at the footnote, footnote number three, if you've got the same ESV as I do. When the Bible uses the term brothers, the the Greek word is adelphoi. And when it's plural, it's often used of not just guys, but also guys and girls. And so that's what you can tell is happening here. Peter stands among the brothers, and then the the parenthetical statement that's in there, where Luke kind of adds some detail, he says the company of persons. In Greek, what he says is the names, the number of names. He's using the most generic form to say Everybody who was in that room numbered about 120. He didn't say it was 120 brothers. He didn't say it was 75 brothers out of the 120. So one of the things you have to pay attention to in the Bible is when you see brothers, don't always think just guys. you got to look at the context. So in this case, the company of believers, the group of disciples is referred to as brothers, whether they're male or female. And, and that's how he starts. So he stands up among the brothers and he says, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. So what is is the church doing in this interval between Jesus' ascension and the arrival of the Holy Spirit? They're together, they're praying, and they're studying Scripture. So even in this gap, what's the church doing? The church is doing what the church has always done, being together, studying Scripture, and praying. That's what we do. So it didn't change here. Nothing is different about that. But Peter looks at the Scripture, and he says, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Time out. It's easy to glide past that sentence and just go, yeah. Consider all the people that were mentioned in that. The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in the scriptures spoke. So even this early in the church, even before Pentecost, the disciples look at the Bible and they say, this is God speaking. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to us. He's saying something to us because he says, look, the the scriptures have to be fulfilled. We have something we have to do here. So very early on, the church held that the the Bible was inspired, that it was God's word, that the Holy Spirit had spoken. Um, That wasn't something that they cooked up later on. One gentleman called uh, the idea of biblical inerrancy, that God speaks in the word, um, that dirty American doctrine, as if it didn't exist before that. The apostles here are looking at the Bible and saying, in the Bible, God speaks to us through his Holy Spirit. But there's more to it. So the scriptures, which the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David. So the Holy Spirit, the way he inspires scripture, the way he speaks to us through scripture is not these magic leaves of of paper fall out of the sky and people pick them up and go, oh, God is speaking to us. He, he doesn't speak to us by wrestling David to the ground, overpowering him and forcing words out of his mouth or magically moving his hand on the paper. The Holy Spirit spoke the scriptures by the mouth of David. David sat down and he wrote poetry because he was, he was the sweet psalmist of Israel, is what he's called in 2 in Chronicles. He sat down and he wrote his sweet psalms. And as he's writing his psalms, the Holy Spirit through David is speaking that's the, the delicate beauty of the doctrine of inspiration. The Christian doctrine of inspiration is so elegant because the human is not eclipsed. The human's not overridden in this. It, it's a very human process by which God does this, but it is the Holy Spirit speaking the Scriptures through the mouth of David. So as David is writing from his perspective and in, in his situation, writing words he understands in situations he knows It's the Holy Spirit speaking. And and both are true. Both of these things are true. But wait, there's more. Who's the last person mentioned? Judas. So do you see what what Peter has just taught us? He said, the Holy Spirit spoke through the scriptures by the mouth of David. And what David was writing about was Judas. What? Judas wouldn't exist for hundreds of years. How could David write about Judas? David didn't know Judas. He was long gone by that point. That, again, is the miracle of the inspiration of the Christian scriptures, is when you look at this, it's possible for David to be writing about Judas, and David not understand that, because the Holy Spirit is authoring this, too. It's the two together. So David is writing. He's probably got somebody in mind when he's writing these things. And he's saying, this this is my foe, and they're doing this, and, you know, may these horrible things happen to him. Lord, I'm throwing them into your hands, and you do what's right. In reality, he's writing about Judas. That's what our our apostle has taught us. That's going to come in really important when we get to look at what the Psalms are that he's referring to. But that sentence to me is just so weighty. That is what I would call an evangelical doctrine of biblical inspiration and inerrancy. That David, hundreds of years beforehand, could write inerrantly, accurately, truthfully about Judas and not even know he was addressing that particular person. That, That is miraculous. That is beautiful and it's subtle. And it's not a distortion of what happened. It's just picking up and holding it for us. That's what we mean as evangelicals when we say inspiration. When we hold our Bible and we say this is the inspired word of God, that's the subtlety, the beauty, the elegance of what's happening there. And we didn't make that up at the turn of the 20th century. This is how the church has held this forever. The church has always looked at God's word as long as they had it in that kind of a fashion. And Peter teaches us that. So he says that the scriptures have to be fulfilled. The scriptures have something to say. That thing that they have to say must take place now, brothers. The scriptures have to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and he was allotted his share in the ministry. So we've now been introduced, reintroduced to Judas. Um, and what comes next is Luke has to pause for a moment. Because Peter's just reminded us that Judas... Um, was the one who led to Jesus' arrest, and he was one of the 12, but I think Luke just kind of goes, oh, wait a minute, I didn't explain that. So if you go back into Luke's gospel, what happens is they have the Last Supper, Jesus announces, one of you guys is going to betray me, and then the next thing you know, they're in the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, and here comes Judas. Um, Luke was aiming at something very different, so he didn't go into a whole bunch of detail about Judas. Instead, he just kind of glided over it. So now he has to go, oh, wait a second, you guys, let me back up and tell you this story so that the very next thing Peter says makes sense. And so it, it's in parentheses. In, in the ESV, it's in parentheses, and it should be. So it's this parenthetical statement. So main story is going along, and we're going to stop here, and we got to deal with Judas for a minute. So here's how Luke explains it. He says, This man, this Judas, he acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akeldama, which is a field of blood. Stop. There's a problem here. And when we look at Matthew chapter 27, um, we kind of run into a little bit of attention here because it sounds like something very different happened. So if you with, have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew 27. And starting in verse 3, let me read Matthew's approach to this. So this is what Matthew has to say. And when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus had been condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said... What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them in the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and they bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that place has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet, of Jer- prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. So the reason I pause here is because we have an apparent tension between these two accounts. They didn't sound quite the same, did they? So what I want to do is, is work through this really briefly uh, and try to harmonize these. So I'm going to start with the easiest and work to the hardest parts to harmonize. This will only take a moment or two. Easiest thing, right off the bat, why is the place called the field of blood? Because of Judas. In, in some fashion or another, Judas's fame was known, and that field, when people would walk by, they go, oh, that's the field of blood, and they would immediately think of Judas. So that's the easy part to harmonize. Now, it sounds like from Matthew, it's called that because it was bought with blood money. Whereas it sounds like in Acts, it was called that because there was blood all over it after Judas died. Um, the, the the reality is it's not clear why it was called that. They point at it for different reasons. They're, they're explaining um, Judas's death for different reasons. Did you notice Matthew's explanation of Judas' death was he went and hanged himself? Whereas Luke goes, oh, it was gross, man. <laughs> Unpacks all the nastiness of it. So Matthew is heading right for the, 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 uh, the uh, guilt of the high priests. That's where he puts his focus. Whereas Luke here in Acts is really focusing on what a horrible death Judas suffered. But the field of blood, that's, that's accurate. And both of them are speaking in contemporary terms, saying that's why, people, that's why we call that the field of blood today. So their audience would go, oh, yeah, I know where that's at. That was about Judas? Oh, Gross. You know, they would remember that. It, that kind of pushes it back to that, hey, this actually happened. You know, they didn't walk past a field and go, that's a field of blood and this guy named Judas. No, that's not. That was been called the field of blood for, you know, 100 years. They knew that that's where that name came from. So that's the easy part to harmonize. They both agree on that. The next step back is, um, who bought the field? Right? Because in, in Matthew's account, it was the chief priest that bought it. Here it says that he acquired it with the reward of his wickedness. So who bought it? Um, I think what happened, if you take these two accounts, when it says that he acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, it doesn't mean he went out and purchased it himself. It means coming to him was a field that was purchased with the, the uh, price of his wickedness. So if we look at Matthew and say, well, Matthew's slowing down. He's giving us more detail on this. What happened was, Judas said, hey, I betrayed an innocent man, and I've got these 30 pieces of silver in my hand, and I don't want them anymore. That was the price that he was paid, and so he throws them into the temple. And the priests go, oh, you can't do that, man. We can't put that money in the temple. That's blood money. Now, the hypocrisy of the whole thing, and I think what Matthew's trying to draw our attention to is, it's your blood money. <laughs> you paid it. So don't look at Judas and go, you can't do that. It's you. It's on you guys. So that's, that's Matthew's point is these high priests are really hypocrites. So they say, well, we can't put that money in the temple because it's too holy and, and you know, it's, it's okay because he was innocent, but he really wasn't innocent. You know, they're, they're, whatever they're doing to justify it. So they take that money and they go out and they buy a field. When they bought it, do you think they put their name on the deed? They'd already rejected that money. That money, as far as they were concerned, could not depart from the hand of Judas. It, he had bought it. He had, he had sold his master with it. It was his money. So what more than likely happened is those high priests went and said, hey, this is uh, Judas's money, and he wants that field, so here, we'll go ahead and buy that for for him. So they bought it, and I believe they bought it in his name. So Judas did acquire it. He didn't go out and purchase it himself, but he acquired it with the price of his wickedness, the wages of his unrighteousness. What he got paid to be as wicked as he was was 30 pieces of silver, and that's what got the field for him. And I think what Luke's point there is, This is all he got for it. He sold his eternal soul to betray the Son of Man, and all he winds up with is a a field, a a plot of dirt where they're burying strangers. And it's called the field of blood. So I think that can be harmonized. I think that that fits together. That's not too bad. Uh, The next question is, when did this happen? And actually, this fits in with how did Judas die? Um, when did this happen? So it sounds like from Matthew that Judas goes out and hangs himself and then the priests gather up the money and go, what are we going to do with this? Oh, let's go buy a field for him and then we'll bury him there. That's not really what's happening in the narrative. Again, Matthew is focusing on the wickedness of the high priests. He just drops the, the bomb in there. By the way, Judas hung himself. So we don't know when or where in the chronology of the thing. We don't know when that happened. We don't know where he did it. We don't know how that happened, we just get, he hanged himself, boom, it happened. So it could be that they bought the field, and then they told Judas, oh, by the way, there's your field, and then he went and committed suicide there. That's possible. Um, The reality is we don't know because neither one gives us a really hard chronology. So when he bought it, when the events happened is not so important. Now the one that's really hard to reconcile, and one commentator said, challenge accepted, I'll give it a shot. So here's what happens. It says in Matthew, Judas hung himself. Peter could find repentance. As Jesus looked at him after he denied him three times, uh, uh, Peter repented. He wept. He, He poured out his heart. When he saw Jesus again, he jumped out of the boat and ran to him as fast as he could. So he had found repentance. Judas could never find repentance. He could never feel sorry for what he did. He felt bad about it. It was a bad decision, I've really screwed up my life, but he could never say I was wrong and I'm really sorry and God couldn't forgive me. So in some fashion, he committed suicide. Now, Matthew says he hung himself. That's pretty straightforward. You put a rope around your neck and you jump off a stool or off of something else and you dangle and that's it. Um, Luke, being the doctor, (laughs) gives us the technical explanation of what exactly happened to poor Judas. Um, he gets really detailed and real graphic, and I'm just going to kind of glide over that if you all don't mind because it's fairly gross. What some commentators have said is what probably happened was Judas hung himself, and as he's hanging on the gallows, eventually fell, and when he fell, his body burst open, and that's, that's Luke's account. Um, that is a possibility, but it's hard to really reconcile. It doesn't sound like that's what Luke is talking about, does it? It sounds like he fell headlong. And when he says headlong, what it means is, is almost prostrate. fell f- flat out. And when he hit the ground, he burst open. Um, so that would be hard to fall off of a gallows and land face down. That, that's a little difficult to do. Like I said, this is a hard one to reconcile. Um, There's a minor reading, and I'm hesitant to bring it up, but I've already opened my mouth, so I'll have to. Um, the word for, uh, for uh, fell headlong is prenate. Or praines. and one way it could be interpreted is swelled up. So the idea was he hung himself and hung on the gallows so long that his body began to swell, and then he broke loose of the gallows, and then that's why he popped open, is because his body was all swollen. That's really nice, it would be great, but that's just too easy, and that is a terribly minor reading for that particular word. The word means he fell headlong, he fell flat. So um, how do we reconcile these two accounts of the death? Um, I'm not positive. Uh, it could be that after he died, he had fallen headlong and burst open. That, that, that's possible. If that's true, then we look to Matthew and say, well, he hung himself. That's how he died. And then we look to Luke and say, and this is what happened to the body as it just burst open. Um, either way, however he died, Luke's point in Acts. So if I lost you in the grotesque details, come on back. We're going back to Luke now. Uh, whatever the point was, Luke's point was his, gra- his death was graphic and it was appropriate. It was exactly what Jesus had said would, would happen. Remember in the Last Supper, Jesus said it would be better for that man had he never been born. And so Luke gives us these gory details because what he's saying is it had been better had he never been born. So that's, he stops and he gives us the backstory of, of Judas and tells us what happened to the man. And now he picks up and he takes us forward. He says, for it is written in the book of Psalms. Now we're back to Peter's speech. Peter says, in the book of Psalms, it says, may his camp be desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Now this is that other part of the early Christians' high view of Scripture, is they have looked at the Psalms and they said, what the Psalms are commanding us to do is to replace Judas. So how do they get that? To get that, we need to look back at Psalm 69. That's what he's quoting, is Psalm 69. Um, Because one of the questions that will come up, and we'll, we'll try to answer that toward the end of the sermon is, did they do this right? Did they handle the scriptures correctly at this point? Or were they wrong to handle it like this? So they looked to the scriptures, and they found something that say, may his camp be a desolation, And then they also found one that said, may another take his place. And therefore, they assumed God is telling us that we have to replace Judas. Did they? Why would they read their Bibles that way? How would they understand it like that? Well, to to get to that, we have to remember, first of all, they have just spent three years walking with Jesus as he's explaining the scriptures to them. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus got the most intense Bible study ever as the resurrected Christ is walking and saying, how did you guys miss this? And unpacking through all of the Old Testament, here's every reason why the Christ had to be um, crucified and rise again. and you guys missed it. and their, their hearts were burning. Then he walks with them for 40 days, offering many proofs that he had risen from the dead. So again, this intense Bible study, these guys learned to read their scriptures from Jesus. That's how they learned. So my contention is when we read our scriptures, we should learn to read our scriptures like these guys did because they learned from our master and they wrote the New Testament, so they are our model. So let's take a look at Psalm 69 and ask, why did they do that with Psalm 69? Why would they see that there? I would love to read the whole thing, but it's a little long. Let me read two passages from it, verses 6 through 12. Uh, Well, first of all, before we do that, at the beginning of the psalm, there's in, in small caps on mine, a title of the psalm. It's not on every psalm, but many psalms have titles. And this one says, to the choir master, according to lilies of David. So when you see those, there is no reason to not assume those are originally part of the psalms. We have no edition of the psalms that don't have those titles. So those titles appear to be inspired along with the psalm. So what that tells us is, this psalm was written to the choir master. So this would be something that the choir would sing. According to lilies, which we have no idea what that's about, it's probably the, the tune it was set to. Lily's was probably one of their, their hymn tunes. And then finally, of David. And that's a problem because what does of David mean? Does it mean by David? Of David? David wrote this, it's of David. Or does it mean it's like David? It's of David's style, it's of, of David like that. Um, or about David? This is, we're singing of David. Um, Well, we know because our inspired apostle told us David wrote it. So, all right, skip ahead. Uh, But that title is important. That sets up the psalm. So now let's take a look, verses 6 through 12. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons, for zeal of your house, for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And I wept and humbled my soul with fasting. It became, it, it became a reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. So right off the bat, let not those who put their hope in you be put to shame through me. He's saying, I I don't want to dishonor you by bringing those who follow you into reproach. And then in verse 7, it's for your sake that I have borne reproach. So it's beginning to sound a little bit like Jesus, isn't it? Did Jesus bear reproach for his sake? Was he due reproach? He was sinless. He was perfect. He bore bore reproach. He bore the sins of his people for God's sake so that he could bring a people to himself. So this is beginning to sound like that. I have become a stranger to my brothers. What happened on the night that Jesus was crucified? His brothers, his apostles scattered. He became a stranger to them. Peter himself looked at Jesus and said, I don't know him. I never met the man. He became a stranger to his brothers. And then the very next verse is, zeal for your house has consumed me. That is directly quoted in John chapter 2 and applied directly to Jesus. Jesus has gone into the temple. In John's gospel, Jesus cleanses the temple at the beginning of his, gospel, his ministry. And so there he goes in, he cleanses the temple, and his apostles didn't understand it. But John makes the comment, later they remembered this psalm. So the apostles look at that and they go, Jesus cleansed the temple because the zeal of for his father's house consumed him. So right there you have a New Testament citation saying this psalm is about Jesus, at least in this part. And then he goes on, and, and if you keep reading it, you hear these echoes of Jesus in it. It begins to sound like Jesus. But that first one, that's a direct quote applied to him. Um, the second half of that, zeal for your house has, has, um, has consumed me. The second half of that, and the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. That, too, is quoted in the New Testament and applied to Jesus. In Romans 15.3, the apostle applies that. He says, this is why you should bear with um, the scorn of others, is because Jesus bore the reproach of others. So he, he cites that as Jesus, applying to Jesus, it says, use that as an example for yourself. So there's a second verse in here that is in the New Testament cited applying to Jesus. Now let's skip ahead. And I want to read a little bit longer section, verses 19 through 26, or 28 rather, I'm sorry. It says, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart, so I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I find none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let those let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let their burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded." Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. So again, what we're hearing here is is echoes of Jesus once more. It's beginning to sound like we're talking about Jesus. They gave me poison for food, in verse 21, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. In john's gospel john chapter 19 they gave jesus vinegar to drink vinegar is soured wine so this is cited there as explaining why they tried to give him vinegar to drink is is because of this verse so again this is the new testament looking at it. it's not just peter on this this odd day in church history but it is the new testament looking at this psalm and saying this is speaking of jesus and then we get to the part where we just read, verse 25, May there can't be a desolation, to let no one dwell in their tents. They pick that up and say that's speaking of Judas. That's the, the, the wrath of God falling on Judas in that way. And so in uh, verse 26, it's not directly cited, but it kind of sounds like it, doesn't it? They persecuted him whom you have struck down. It was God who struck Jesus. It pleased him to crush him is what Isaiah tells us. So you get that flavor going through this. Now, if you read the whole psalm, you'll, you'll get that echo, that echo of Jesus in there. So when the apostles look at that, back in Acts chapter 2, they're saying this is speaking of Judas because the psalm is about Jesus. And so when we look at that we say that he will be, um, his camp will be desolate, that's exactly what happened. He has a camp. It's called Akeldama It's called the Field of Blood. And that's his. It was bought with his blood money. And what is it? It's a place where strangers, where people nobody knows, get buried. It, that is a desolation. So they're looking at that, and saying, once again, the Lord's prophecy through his prophets is coming true one more time. So then the second part that they say is, and let another take his office. And in that one, they're quoting Psalm 109. Would love to go through Psalm 109 in detail, but let's keep it short. Um, Psalm 109 verses 6 through 9 say, Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he has tried, let him come forth guilty. Let the, his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. And so they're looking at that, and they're saying, well, Judas was at Jesus' right hand. He was one of the apostles. That's what Peter said is, he? he had a portion in our ministry. He was one of the ones who sat at the table at the Last Supper. He was one who Jesus washed the feet of. He was one when Jesus sent out the twelve with power to cast out demons and heal people, Judas went out and cast out demons and healed people. And he wasn't saved. He was that close to Jesus and refused to trust him, refused to believe in him. He was at Jesus' right hand. And so he says, let him, come, let him go to trial and be found guilty, May his days be few, and they were. They were cut off, and may another take his office. He had an office, and another is going to take it now. So this is how they read the Psalms. This is how they read their Bible, is they looked at the the Scriptures, and they said, the Bible is about Jesus. And I think that's a really big question that you have to ask yourself, is what is the Bible about? The Bible is a book of books, but there is one consistent flowing story from beginning to end. And the question is, what is the Bible about? What is it saying? Some people I've heard say the Bible is life's handbook. So then what the Bible is about, according to that theory, is it's about how to live your life right. It's life's handbook. Um, Some people say it's basic instructions before leaving earth, which is kind of the same thing as Bible, that's a cute little acronym. Um, Is that what the Bible is about? Is it about me and how I should live my life? Well, how did we just hear the apostles handle the Bible? What did they tell you this morning the Bible is about? What did Jesus tell the, ro- the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus that the Bible was about? They looked at it and they said, The Bible's about Jesus. That, that's what the Bible's about. That's what's going on. Jesus could look at the Pharisees and say, You search the Scriptures because in them you think is eternal life. And these bear witness to me. You want eternal life? That's right. You should look to the Scriptures. That's right. But you don't find me there, you don't find eternal life. So Jesus' approach to the scriptures was, the Bible is about me. The apostles then pick it up and they go, yeah, the Bible's about Jesus. So when they look at Psalm 69, when they look at Psalm 109, they say, this was foretold in Jesus' sufferings that his friend, his close friend, would betray him and that he now needed to be replaced. And so they say, well, let's replace him. That must be what, what God's telling us to do from his word. So one of them, Peter's speaking again after he quotes, he says, so one of them, the men who's accompanied us during all of this time that the Lord went out and in among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day it was taken up from us, one of these men must become a witness to the resurrection. So this is their plan. They see from the scripture, Jesus has told us that we need to replace um, Judas. Here's what we're going to do. Now, Why is it that they said has to be somebody who's been with us from John's baptism to the ascension because that man is going to be a witness to his resurrection? They are doing exactly what Jesus told them. Didn't he say that? He said, stay in Jerusalem until the power comes upon you. And the second thing he says is, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So at this point, they're going, what did Jesus tell us to do? Well, we're going to be his witness. So who do we pick to replace Judas? We need a witness, because that's going to be our role, is we're going to witness to the resurrection. If you remember last week, I said the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the argument of the book of Acts. It is the apologetic throughout the book of Acts, and you see that happening right here. the, The replacement apostle must be a witness. So that's one of these things that's descriptive. Are we going to find today... Somebody to be our pastor who was a witness, who went with Jesus from the time of John's baptism until the ascension so that he can come and be our pastor. If he does, I'm sitting down. He can have it. I want to listen to this person. That's descriptive. We're not going to find somebody like that. I wish we could. That would be really interesting to hear all the details, but we're not going to find anybody like that. That's describing what the apostles were looking for. So that's what they decide they're going to do. They're going to replace Judas. Now, one of the other little side notes on this is, if you remember when they listed the people who returned from Jerusalem, they listed the 11 apostles. And that kind of sticks in their craw. It should be 12. There are 12 tribes of Israel. There should be 12 apostles. And so they want to replace that missing apostle, the one who went apostate, who who left the faith. And so now they've looked and they've decided, this is the criteria of who we're looking for. And so how do they decide on this man? Well, the first thing they do is they pray about it. Is After they decide that, they look around and they say, all right, there's two men. There's Joseph called Barsabbas, also called Justice. He's got three names. I'd vote for him because he's got three names, but it wasn't a vote. And then the other one was uh, Matthias. And so they prayed. What they did was they said, Lord, we see from your word this is what has to happen. Now we're going to ask you to make that happen. And we can ask you to make that happen with great confidence because your word says that's what's got to happen. So that's what we're going to do. And so they stop and they pray. And listen to the prayer for a second. They pray, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these you have taken to, uh, chosen to take place in the ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. You, Lord, know the hearts of all men. Who have they spent three years calling Lord? Jesus. When they went and they watched him ascend, they stopped after the ascension and they worshipped him. They worshipped Jesus, whom they'd just lived with for three years. Now they stop and they say, We need somebody to replace Judas. You, Lord, you, Jesus, know the hearts of all men. They expect him to remain involved. They didn't watch him disappear into the clouds and go, well, that was over. Now what do we do? They're counting. Even at this time, they're looking to him and saying, Lord, you're still leading your church. You're still in charge. And so, Lord, would you show us? Would you lead us in this way? That is a tremendous act of faith to pray to a man that you've just watched die, a man who you spent three years on the road with, and say, you know the hearts of all people. That's hard because we haven't done it. It was easier for them because they walked with this man. They saw him know the hearts of people, and they knew that he was going not to just sit and wait till his return. He's going to sit and rule. So he's going to rule and reign over the universe. And so they ask him to do that. Now, the next thing they do is they cast lots, Um, descriptive or prescriptive, casting lots. If you people cast lots to decide if you were going to call me to be your pastor, I quit. But it's biblical, right? Isn't casting lots biblical? When the, priest, when the high priest was all decorated, when he had all his, his, his gear on, he had a big breastplate. And in the breastplate was things called umum and "thummin. And what that was, that im at the end of those two words means it's plural. So there's the um and the thum. And those were used to discern God's will. So um, so uh, Samuel would consult the um to try to get an answer, and the um wouldn't answer him. And so that's why he went and he sought a medium to get to Samuel to figure out what God was wanting out of him. God wasn't speaking through these lots. So we don't know what the um and the fumim were, but it was for casting lots. And God would speak to Israel through that. So I guess the, the closest analogy for us would be, we'd take some dice and roll dice and we'd say, okay, Lord, if it's, uh, if it's Barsabbas, make it an even number. And if it's uh, uh, Matthias, make it an odd number and roll the dice and see what happened. But the thing was, the way that they cast lots back then, they could get a non-answer. So it was possible that they could throw the dice or, or roll the sticks or whatever it was and get no answer whatsoever. That's what frustrated Saul so much. So when they do this, they do get an answer. And the answer fell, the person is Matthias. That's the one who should take his place. Why did they cast lots at this point to find a leader? The reason is because they're in the gap. They're in this space between Jesus' ascension and the arrival of the Holy Spirit. They don't have the rest of the New Testament. So in the fall, when we look at elders and deacons and we say, who are going to be our elders, who are going to be our deacons, we're not going to cast lots for them. What we have is we have the rest of the New Testament telling us this is the kind of person you look for to be an elder. These are the kinds of people you look for to be deacons. But at this point in redemptive history, at this, at this time, lots were their best bet. And they didn't just throw them and go, you know, let's, let's hope for the best. Let's flip a coin or something. They prayed, Lord, we expect you, Jesus, we expect you to speak to us through the casting of lots. And at that time, that was an appropriate prayer. That was a right thing to ask him is, Lord, lead us. We want to replace Judas with the right person, and we're counting on you to lead us to the right person. So we're going to cast these lots, and Jesus, we believe you have enough power to make them come out the way you want. That would be like rolling dice and saying, Lord, I believe that you will make the number appear that you want to appear. And he does, by the way. This is not always answering your question. It just is the way that he, wrote, he causes those things to roll. So that's what happens is they, they cast these lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11. And we never hear of the man again. This is it. He becomes one of the 12, a witness to the resurrection, and we don't know anything about him. So does this mean, and this is where I was saying, did they get the Bible right? If that's true, if Matthias disappears from the pages of Scripture, did they get the wrong guy? There's a theory that what they did was wrong. They jumped ahead of themselves, and they didn't wait for God to bring them the right guy, that Paul was actually the 12th apostle. And so they just jumped ahead, and they were wrong in doing this, and so God you know, just let them do it until he got around to getting the right guy. What do you think of that? Is that a decent argument? Anybody comfortable with that? That makes me twitchy. Like, wait a minute, they were wrong? I don't think they were wrong. If they were wrong, God is sovereign. He could have gave them a lot that said no answer. The magic eight ball. Try again, something like that. He didn't do that. He gave them an answer. So what do we do with Paul? We'll get to Paul in a little bit. But just to jump ahead a touch, Paul is called an apostle. He is an apostle. He says that he has the signs of the apostles. He has authority. He's writing most of the New Testament. So was he the the twelfth apostle or was he the thirteenth apostle? Yes. No. All of the above. Because you know who else is called an apostle right next to him? Barabbas. Or Barnabas, rather. Barnabas, his good friend Barnabas, is called an apostle too. So is Barnabas now the 14th apostle? Are we going to just keep adding on? That's not what's going on. The term apostle is a fairly complicated term. It simply at its root means sent one. Jesus chose 12 and he sent them. So there are the 12 apostles. So there is this holy office called the twelve. And most of the time in Acts, when you see the word apostle, it's referring to one of those 12, except when it's not. <laughs> and so that's the problem, is when I, when I read that in the commentary, I said, yeah, so that's, that's what it means. I was like, except that's not what it means when it doesn't mean what it means. It means something more. So we have to be careful when we're looking at, at the term apostle in the New Testament. It is more complicated than we give it credit for. But in this case, when we talk about the 12, there are 12 apostles. So if they're correct, if they pick Matthias because God told them through lots, then they read the scriptures right, didn't they? The scriptures told them that Judas is going to be lost. He's going to go out. They need somebody else to take his office. They follow through and they did it. So if they were right in reading their scriptures, if they were right in being obedient to their scriptures, then they were right in asking the Lord, show us who it is. And the Lord showed him it was Matthias. So Matthias is the 12th apostle, even if we never hear him again. Because you know what? Most of the apostles we don't ever hear from him again. We get the biggies, Peter, James, John, but the rest, we don't get a whole bunch from anymore. We don't know what happened to them. That's not where the focus is. The focus in the second half of Acts is going to shift to Peter, or Paul, rather. The first half will be largely on Peter. The second half will be largely on Paul. And it's just the way it is. (laughs) So if they're right, then they have just shown us how to read our scriptures. So are we then free to go flying through the Old Testament and find Jesus under every rock? This is where I want to offer a word of caution when you're going to read your Bible this way. Uh, for example, I was just looking, I, I have a blog. Don't look at it, it's kind of dumb, boring. But I did a blog post and I, was, I just read through uh, Joshua. And in Joshua, Rahab welcomes the spies into Jericho and she says, be kind to us because we know your God is powerful and everybody's afraid of him and we want to submit to him, everybody else is going to revolt. And so the spies say, okay, if you do this thing, then we will take care of you. We won't destroy you when we come into Jericho. First of all, everybody in your family has to be in this room. They have to be in this house. Second of all, tie a red stre- a scarlet thread out your window, a scarlet cord out your window. And then when we come and we destroy Jericho, everybody in that house will be spared. Everybody else is gone. And so I did a blog post on that. And I said, what is the scarlet cord? And I went through a couple of different theories on the scarlet cord. It was, um, it was different things that it could be. And in the end, I said, you know what the scarlet cord was? It was a piece of scarlet hanging out a window. So in the chaos of battle against these sandstone walls, this red stripe would be up there, and they'd go, don't shoot them. They would know who not to attack. That's what the scarlet cord was. Because every time Rahab's mentioned, it's about protecting the, th- the uh, spies, not the scarlet cord. So I just thought that was pretty straightforward, right? You know, I'm not going to go find oh, it's the blood of Christ flowing through redemptive history. Well, Jesus' blood does flow through redemptive history, but it didn't flow through a window in a harlot's place, and, and you know that's not what that's about. The comments I got on it were bizarre, just bizarre. This one guy starts going off about Tamar. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm talking about Rahab, and then he starts talking about Mary. And I'm like, no, we're we're talking about Rahab and a scarlet cord. And so therefore, since Tamar had twins, then Jesus has a dual nature. Dude, I don't know where you got that from. Jesus did have a dual nature. He was completely human and completely divine. But you don't get that because of scarlet thread's hanging out of Jericho window. So that's the danger of trying to read this like the apostles and just going haywire. Just I'm off in left field. I'm finding Jesus under everything. Anytime there's two, it's Jesus' divine nature. The problem with that is you can, it's a wax nose. Have you heard that term, wax nose? It's an old, ancient term. It means you can mold it into whatever you want to look like that day. In in the war, people would lose a nose, and they'd put this wax thing in there, and they, they could shape it. So today I want to have a small nose, and tomorrow I want to have a big nose. That's kind of what that hermeneutic is, is how do I want to shape the text this morning? What's important to me today, Jesus' dual nature or human dual nature? Uh, sin and Saviors, uh, or Sin and sin and Saints, um, you, know, you wind up reading it that way. The, the safeguard in this that our apostles offered us this morning was when they read Psalm 69, the context that jumped out of that at them was Jesus. It wasn't me. It was Jesus, and it wasn't some fancy stuff. It was talking about Jesus being persecuted, being rejected, bearing reproach, having somebody close to him betray him. So when they looked at it, they saw these clear pictures of who Jesus was, and therefore they could say, well, this is talking about that. That must be what that is. So that's kind of the rails on this, is when we read the Old Testament and we're looking through and looking for Jesus, is to not go too far, but also to not not go far. Uh, When I I was driving to church this morning, I just wanted to hear a sermon, so I googled uh, Tim Keller, Psalms, Jesus. See if he said anything about it. You know, just a little inspiration on the way. One of the first things that popped up was an article at religionnews.net that said Jesus is not mentioned in the Psalms, but Tim Keller finds him there. And I went, what? What do you mean he's not? The New Testament doesn't agree with you on that. You know, don't swing it at Tim Keller. You're going to have to argue with the whole New Testament. Jesus is mentioned in the Psalms repeatedly. That's how the New Testament approaches it. So do you see where we're going with this? There's a balance to be found here is you don't want to find him under every little rock and cranny, but at the same time, you won't want him to look and go, well, he ain't there. He's not, Jesus is not mentioned in the Old Testament, is wrong. Our New Testament authors would totally dis- disagree with that. So that's how we're going to approach our Bible, is we're going to be reading through and going, Lord, show me where Jesus is in this story. So I'm going through Joshua. just happened to be, I didn't do the, the scarlet thread thing. But I get to the point where they're approaching Jericho, and suddenly the captain of the Lord's host appears before Joshua and Joshua says are you for us or for our enemies and he says neither I'm the captain of the Lord's host for the Lord I've come take off your shoes this is holy ground the Bible tells us nobody has seen God at any time the only begotten God the the son has revealed him so when the captain of the host of the army shows up that's Jesus talking to him and I don't think that's far-fetched I don't think that's pushing it too far Because the Bible, the New Testament tells me Jesus reveals God to people. That's who you see when you see God, as you see Jesus. That's who we see when we see God, as we see Jesus. In the end, we will see God face to face. So that's what we're trying to wrestle with as we're reading our Bibles, is how do we find Jesus in it in an honest, organic, natural way without going too far into the woo-woo land of divine nature, human nature because of this, that, and the other, is... Our, our apostles set the example for us. Jesus sets the example for us. He doesn't go too far, and he doesn't ignore it. So this morning, as we're looking at this interval time, what we're getting is exactly what the church has always done. Like I said at the beginning, they're together. We did that this morning, you guys. Check that one off. You got that done. We got together. We ate breakfast together. We had a good conversation. We had a nice time. The church got together. We pray We gather and we pray. We pray individually. We pray in our small groups. We pray uh, at Third Friday across the hall. We got together, we prayed, and we study our scripture. We look at our Bibles and we say, Lord, what is it that you want us to do? What are you telling us we should be doing? Show us from your word how we can approach that. And that's what the apostles did even before the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Now, I really want to preach on the Holy Spirit. I'm going to hold that off till next week. (laughs) But there's a whole bunch more to say. Even in this gap, even in this interval, the church is being the church. So if anybody ever tells you there's a time when the church wasn't the church, you know categorically immediately they're wrong. Jesus built his church. Even before he sent his Holy Spirit on his church, his church was his church. And they were doing what they had been told to do. They had been doing what God had prophesied they would do from years before. And so there's not a time when Jesus' church is not being Jesus' church. So don't ever believe that lie. And you can go to the scripture. This is, a key, this is a good proof text as far as I'm concerned. Is here they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet and they're still the church. So don't tell me it ended with Constantine or it ended, you know, when the apostles died or whatever date you want to make up. The church has been the church. Saint, that's good news for you. The church is not an institution. It's not a set of doctrine. It's not a building. The church is people. The church is people that God has called to himself. So when I say the church has always been the church, I'm talking to you and about you. That's how secure you are. Your, your faithful Lord will not depart from you. He will not leave you. He will not let you be extinguished. It gets dark at times. It gets bright at times. But God is still walking with us. And even in this time before the arrival of the Holy Spirit, they are still doing that. And that, that's our hope. That's our treasure is that we have this hope of God being with us until the day he returns, and then forever. That's good news. That, that's, that's hope building, as far as I'm concerned. And the apostles got that. They knew that. So let's close in prayer. Lord, as we look to the Bible, Lord Holy Spirit, you wrote this. You spoke as men were carried along and they said their words, which by some miraculous movement of the Spirit were exactly your words. And so, Lord, we, we pray that as we read our Bibles, that we would see you in them, that we would see not only your story of what you're doing through history, but the, the crux of the story, the center of the story is Jesus Christ promised in the Garden of Eden, promised to Abraham, promised in the law, fulfilled in the New Testament, who's come And so, Lord, help us increase our faith as we look to your word. Show us who Jesus is and cause us to be amazed at and love him more. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.